please give ear as we continue our series through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to take another look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And so please give ear to the reading of God's word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't think I will ever get tired of watching disaster movies. You guys know what disaster movies are. It's like a certain genre. Usually in a disaster movie, the plot is built on an idea that an impending disaster looms and threatens a town, a city, or all of civilization. Movies like Armageddon with Bruce Willis, where an asteroid is headed towards Earth, and unless humanity stops that asteroid, everyone is going to die. Or perhaps uh, something a little bit more relevant to our times, the movie Outbreak. And I know I'm totally dating myself with these movies, where a deadly, extremely contagious Ebola virus threatens to wipe out all of humanity unless they find a cure, right? Well, this is what we find in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It reads like a disaster movie, except this isn't fiction. This isn't entertainment. This is real. Last week, we took a look at these verses and saw how all of humanity is on a crash course towards judgment. Humanity is hopelessly lost, entrenched in sin, living according to the ways of the world, obsessed with living for his own glory, pleasure, and name. And just when you think that there's no hope for mankind, at the very end, in verse 4, we see that God comes to the rescue. Verse 4 begins with, but God, and the trajectory of humanity takes a sudden turn. God enters the picture and offers salvation to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so if this were a movie about here, right after But God, you would see the the, the credits roll down as the audience all breathe a collective sigh of relief and we walk out of the theater saying, thank you, God, for saving us. But Paul isn't done yet. He's only getting started. As glorious as it is to know what God has saved us from, 
Paul now proceeds to tell us what God saves us to. Knowing what God saved us from is only half of the equation. We must not forget that God also saves us to a life more glorious and amazing than we could ever imagine for ourselves. Oftentimes, I think we shortchange God. Depending on our temperance or perhaps our upbringing, whether at home or at church, we tend to focus more on what God has saved us from or perhaps focus more on what God saves us to. But it's rare that we fully appreciate everything that God has saved us from and to. And so here in verses four through seven, we're gonna focus on what God saves us to. And if you're taking notes, my sermon's divided into three points here. Here in verses four through seven, we find the what of our salvation, the how of our salvation, and then the why. So what, how, and why. What does God save us to? The what is summed up by three verbs listed in succession here in verses five and six. These verbs are God made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him. He made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him. You'll notice that these three verbs reverse the the grim condition of man as described in verses one through three. If you were here last week, you might recall how Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins, walking according to the ways of the world and living enslaved to the power of the air, the power of the evil one. Well here, when he makes us alive, raises us up and seats us with Jesus, Paul is telling us that everything we once were, God now reverses in the other direction. And so we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. We saw how it means that we are deadened to the things of God. We no longer respond to spiritual stimuli. We are calloused to spiritual truths. And yet the Holy Spirit comes and replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that now beat after the things of God. It sensitizes us to the movement of God, to the truths of God. And so for the first time, we feel true conviction over our guilt and shame, not simply over its impact on our lives, but especially of how our living impacts God. And because of the Holy Spirit, for the first time, now we are stunned by the wonder of the cross, amazed that Jesus would go through all this so that we might become his beloved children. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He has made us alive. Not only that, but we no longer walk according to the ways of the world. 
enslaved to fleshly desires instead of living for ourselves, for our glory, for our pleasure. The gospel sets us free from self-absorption. It sets us free from navel gazing. We begin to understand that what God offers us in Jesus Christ is infinitely better than anything you and I can garner and discover in this world by our own strength. We discover that what God offers us in Jesus in the gospel is so much better than that fancy new car or that luxurious vacation, that what we have in Jesus is better. As a result, in Christ, he fills our cup and he moves us away from a scarcity mindset into a servant mindset. No longer do we live as beggars hoarding the resources of this world to fill ourselves because God fills us up through his son. We can now look to others and serve them. Lastly, we are no longer under the power of the ruler of the air. We're no longer slaves of the evil one. Paul tells us that we have been seated with Jesus in the heavens. Now, when Paul tells us that we are seated with Jesus in the heavens, he's telling us more than simply the fact that we are going to be in heaven with Jesus. He's also doing more than simply telling us that there are chairs in heaven. Look, honey, there's chairs in heaven. We can sit down with Jesus. No, to be seated with Jesus communicates a very profound theological truth and reality. You see, the term or the phrase to be seated communicates power and authority. To be seated at the right hand of God, which Jesus is, communicates ultimate power and authority. And you might be thinking, Jeff, what in the world does being seated have to do with power and authority? Well, I want you to picture a king ruling over his kingdom. What do you picture? For me, I picture a king sitting on his throne. Not a king standing and pacing back and forth not a king scurrying around, getting things done, but a king sitting on his throne, issuing his directives as others do his bidding. That image of a king, king sitting communicates power and authority. We, we, we see this association even today in the courtroom. What happens when a judge enters the room? The bailiff yells out, all rise for the honorable so-and-so is entering, and everyone stands up. And then when the judge gets to his place, what does he do? He sits down. And the moment he sits down, court is in session. And when court is in session, the judge is the ultimate authority over that courtroom. Have you ever heard a judge rebuke someone for inappropriate behavior and say, that 
will not be tolerated in my courtroom. My courtroom. There's this, this idea saying, I am judge here. I have ultimate authority here. That type of behavior will not be tolerated. We see this association earlier in Ephesians 1. It's worth our time looking at it again. Verses 20 through 22, Paul writes, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and what? Seating him at his right hand in the heavens. And what comes out of that seating? Far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. Right after Paul tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, he proceeds to say he is ultimate ruler and king. Everything is subjected under his feet. So when Paul tells us that Jesus is seated in heaven, he's saying more than just he is authority of a single courtroom, but that he is ultimate authority over the cosmos, over everything in this universe and in the age to come. And so he then goes on and says, we are seated with him. We share in his rule and authority. Not only are we set free from the power of the evil one, but now we are co-regents with Jesus over the evil one. Earlier, Paul told us that we are co-heirs with Jesus, and we talked about the theme of inheritance, where the inheritance of, of Jesus, he now shares with us. Now, Paul is saying, not only are we co-heirs, we are co-regents. We will rule alongside Christ as princes and princesses in his kingdom. What does this mean for us? It means that you and I no longer have to live in fear. As I get older, I realize more and more how much fear impacts our lives. We no longer have to live in fear, fear of an unknown future, fear for the health of our kids, fear for our own health, fear for our parents, fear over our finances, fear over our jobs, fear if we'll ever meet a special someone, fear if we'll ever be able to have a child, fear if we're ever going to get a job, fear over this or that, we no longer have to fear because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He reigns in absolute power. His will cannot be hindered or even threatened. He is invincibly ruling, defending, and caring for his people so that whether his answer to our prayers is yes no or wait, whether he gives us blessing or affliction, you and I can trust that what he sends our way is for our good and for his glory, that his will is perfect and pleasing. And so we don't have to be crippled by fear. 
God sits on the throne. Now that we cover the what of our salvation, let's talk about the how. How does God accomplish our salvation? If you look at the three main verbs I highlighted before, made alive, raised, and seated, when you look at the Greek, you'll notice something that connects all of them together. It comes out in our English translation, but not very clearly. Let's look at verses five and six again. He made us alive with Christ. And then verse six, he raised us up with him and seated us with him. What do you notice associate or coming together with uh, those verbs? It's with him. Well, when you look at the, the words in Greek, there is a prefix before each one of them. That prefix is syn, S-Y-N, where we get the word synchronized, like synchronized swimming, or sync. As you can guess, the prefix syn means together or with. This prefix points to the how of our salvation. How are we made alive? How are we raised and seated? We are made alive, raised, and seated because we are with Jesus, because of our union with Jesus. The Bible teaches us that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us who believe. That whatever God did for Jesus, God does for us. So that just as Jesus was made alive, we are made alive with him, just as Jesus rose from the dead and resurrected, we too will also resurrect with him. Just as Jesus is seated, we are seated with him. And to understand what's going on here, you need to understand, and don't get thrown off by, uh, by the, the, the fanciness of the term, but it's the concept of federal headship. Federal headship. You see, when God created Adam... He created Adam to be a federal head. What that means is that Adam did not simply live for himself, but he was the representative head of humanity, all those who would come from him. So that his actions, his performance would have direct bearing upon his descendants. This explains the fall of man. When Adam fell and rebelled against God, all of humanity, who he represented, fell and rebelled with him. But Adam would not be the last federal head. Jesus, too, came into this world as a federal head. And he comes to represent all those who would believe and put their faith in him so that Jesus' performance and actions would have direct bearing upon his people. That's why when he died, Paul can say, I was crucified with Christ. That's why when he rose, we will rise with him. He is our federal head. His victory becomes our victory. His story becomes our story. 
The principle of federal headship is clearly laid out in Romans 5, 18 through 19, where Paul says, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. He's talking about the first Adam. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Now he's talking about Jesus. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I understand that for those of us who grew up in the Western side of the world, uh, the concept of federal headship makes us feel uncomfortable. We are all about individualism and independence, and the idea that someone else's actions would have impact on me is so un-American. But I want you to see that this concept actually exists in different ways in our society. For example, if the President of the United States declared war on Russia, that means whether you agree with that decision or not, if you're an American, you're at war with Russia. If Putin decides where to attack, he can attack anywhere in the United States irregardless of how many people in Southern California might be for the war, we are Americans. And so the actions of one person impact us all. On a less serious note, in case any of you guys are all of a sudden getting worried, uh, when a couple weeks ago, the Lakers were in the playoffs, and I imagine a common water cooler conversation going something like this. Hey, I, I was super busy last night. I didn't catch the game. Did we win? And someone saying, no, we, we lost. No one would bat an eye. You're probably saying, what's wrong with that? Well, can you imagine if someone said, hey, did we win? And the other person say, what do you mean, we? Are you on the Lakers? Are you on the team? How can you say we as if you're one of them? No, none of us would bat an eye. Why? Because there's this understanding that the Lakers represent us. So much so that when they win a championship, we are jumping up and down, tears of happiness, as if we were there and we are the ones who won the championship. Vice versa, if they lose, we are so depressed We'll go into our rooms and not talk to anyone. Covenant representation. The actions of a few reflect upon us. We participate in that. And this is how Jesus accomplished our salvation. He is our federal champion who fought sin and death for us. He paid the ultimate price so that we, his covenant people, might be rescued and become co-heirs and co-regents with him because his victory is our victory. His reward becomes our reward. That's how awesome our salvation is. It's all because of him. Now that we've seen the what and the how, let's talk about the why. Why did God save us in the first place? Why did God even bother sending his son to live for us, to die for us, and fight for us? When verses four and seven, Paul spells out the why. 
verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. The first thing Paul explains is, you want to know why? It's because God is rich in mercy. In mercy, Our God is a merciful God. That's why Jesus came into this world. But there's more. Paul proceeds to say, well, just as much as mercy underpins why Jesus came, there's actually another motivation that underpins where mercy comes from. He says, because of his great love he had for us. And so you'll notice if you pay special attention to the words and the phrases used here, mercy and love are not on equal footing. No, Paul says there's mercy, but then mercy flows from Jesus' love, from God's love. And so if, if mercy is the initial layer to the why, then love is the ultimate layer of the why. Love is the fountainhead of our salvation. God does this for us because he is rich in love. When the Bible says God is love, dear friends, what we have is not poetic exaggeration. God is speaking truth. You want to know who I am? I am love. Love is who he is. Love is what he does. It's the reason why he created us. It's the reason why he saves us. He loves us with a great love. He loves us passionately, deeply, sacrificially, as much as God is a God who reigns over the cosmos in ultimate authority and power, he also reigns in love as the most loving being ever. New Testament scholar Steve Ball points out that in Greco-Roman times, it was common for countries and tribes when they went to war, and if they were victorious, they would take their spoils from the defeating side. But they were always careful to select from their spoils a treasure, a relic of special importance and dedicate it to their gods. It's their way of saying, God, we couldn't have done it without you. And what would they do with this offering to the God? They would deposit it into their temple place of worship. And so when you visit old, ancient, Greco-Roman temples, what you realize is that they were more than just places of worship, they also were museums in many ways. They were trophy rooms where the worshiper would come and perhaps see on a wall on the mantle of the temple all the relics of the past that communicate all the victories their God has given them so that they would say to themselves, wow, what a great God we serve. 
Today, if you walk in a successful company, you might see the same thing. Plastered on the walls are pictures of awards and achievements they've made, perhaps the original founding CEO or whatnot, and then a picture of the now of you know, hundreds of uh, employees. Perhaps they put on the wall uh, a picture of the cover of Forbes magazine, top 100 company in the world, number one market share in America, top 10 places to work in, so that anyone who visits this company and sees all these accolades and achievements might say, wow, this is an amazing company. Well, Paul tells us, and when you walk into heaven, you walk into his throne room. The way he boasts and brags to show all of creation just how awesome he is, is he displays his church. You and me. In verse 7, Paul says, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is God's boast. What he has done for us in Jesus in saving us from and saving us to is what God brags about in the coming ages for eternity. He says, look at my people. Look at what I've done for them. Look at what I endured for them. They are proof that I am rich in love, deep in kindness, amazing in grace. We become the trophies of God in heaven. That's how good we have it to be followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That there is not one blessing you withhold from us. That you love us not with a second class love but you love us with all of your heart, mind, and soul. That you have given us the reward of Jesus, our covenant champion, who fought for us, died for us, and now is raised and seated in heaven, and we are raised and seated with him. Lord, help us to grasp just a little bit of how awesome it is to be your child. Just enough to drive out all the despair and sorrow, the complaints and the grumbling of our souls in this life. Help us, O oh Lord, to see how rich we are. We pray this in Jesus' name.